Before we open the scriptures, I need to make a, a quick uh, confession, and it is this. I'm really happy today. And I know, and I'm only telling you that ahead of time because I know sometimes when somebody's happy and you're not, it's kind of irritating, isn't it? When somebody else is happy, but I, I'm actually in a really good mood. I'm really happy today because the text of scripture we're going to read is going to set somebody free today. I mean, I'm like, I've, the whole time I've been pacing down here like a, like a lion in a cage, like, let me out there, let me out there, coach, because I, I know that if you'll just pay attention to what God's saying today, somebody's going to be set free. So we're going to start kind of picking up where we left off, last few verses of where Kevin covered last week. So will you stand with us as we read the word of God together? We stand just to recognize that the word of God is above us. We don't stand over the word. We stand under the word. Galatians chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. What I'm saying is this, that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subjected to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Lord, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, help us understand this. Would you just impart this word into us? Lord, remove all distractions right now. Let us be focused on you and what you're saying to your people in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A number of years ago, um, I heard Chuck Swindoll tell a story about going into a church in Southern California, and in this church in the atrium, there were a picture. There was a picture, a kind of a mural on the wall, and there was Socrates, and there was the Buddha, and there was Jesus, and then there was Muhammad, and, and inscribed underneath it, it said, "Quote: Ye are all sons of God." Dot dot dot. It's ellipsis. End quote. Galatians three twenty six. And he said it was interesting to him as he looked at the ellipsis. What does the ellipsis mean? The ellipsis means we're leaving something out, but we're just giving you the important part. There's more in the sentence. And isn't it interesting what the more is? The more in the sentence is you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. See, it's faith in Jesus that makes us children of God. 
Now, there's a sense in which by virtue of being created by God in his image that we are his offspring. There, that is true, Paul. And when he was speaking in Acts 17 later in Athens, he was speaking to people who were not yet disciples of Jesus. And he said, we are his offspring. So there is that sense. But what Paul is talking about in Galatians is that we are God's children and we've been adopted into his family. By faith in Jesus Christ, we become his children. It's not just that he's our creator. He's now our father, and we're in the family. And just we, as we learned earlier in Galatians, we are justified, that is, we're declared righteous by faith. So also, here, we are adopted by faith in Jesus. So a good question would be, what does faith in Jesus look like, right? I mean, if we're going <laughs> if that's what adopts us, if that's what makes us there, what does faith in Jesus look like? And in a word, there's a lot more to be said here, but in a word, it's trust. To have faith in Jesus means that you believe that he is Lord and you trust him. You believe that he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he took your place. He didn't die just for you, he did that, but he also died as you, substituting himself for you, and you trust in what he did for your salvation. Now, if that sounds weird, just remember, all of us, every day, are putting our trust in something. Every single one of us are putting our trust. We are entrusting our lives to other people. I heard a story, Rick Warren was telling a story about he was in Northern California and he was driving up, you know, kind of the side of a mountain and it was curvy roads and there was a truck, big truck that was going really slow and so there were a number of cars that were backed up in the line behind this big truck and no one could see out far enough to see if it was safe to pass, but one person could see and it was the truck driver. So he rode down the window and he stuck his arm out and when there was enough room for people to safely pass, he would wave his arm so that they would go ahead and go around. And their car was eight or ten cars back when it got up to be their turn. The, the, the trucker stuck his arm out and waved around, and he pulled out into the other lane, and that's when it hit him. Not a car. The idea, the idea hit him that he was entrusting his life to somebody he didn't even know. He didn't even know this cat. He wasn't just entrusting his life, but his wife and his kids who were in the back seat. He was entrusting everything to a truck driver he didn't know, he had never met. I mean, was, did the guy sleep well last night? Is, has, is he wearing prescription glasses? Like, is he smoking dope? I don't know. I don't even know what the guy looks like. All I can see is his arm. I'm, I'm entrusting the life of my family to a hairy arm with a mom tattoo. But you know what? We do that every day. We entrust our lives to people we don't. I mean, when you drove here today, you, you came to a stoplight and it was green. There was a green light and you pulled on through and you trusted that the other direction was red. And number two, you trusted that the other people would obey that red light. And you don't know those people. You don't know if they're paying attention, if they're receiving a fax in their car. You don't know. When you go to every fast food restaurant, you get your food served to you by a teenager. You're, you're entrusting your life to a teenager that they didn't drop the food on the floor. They didn't spit in it. You're, you are trusting them. When you came in this morning, you trusted, just a moment, after we read the scripture, you sat down and you trusted that the chair was going to hold you up. You trusted that Phil Yeoman didn't come in here this morning early and because you sit in the same seat every doggone Sunday, he didn't remove the screws as a joke 
so that you felt every one of you trusted your life to Phil Yeoman this morning. Think about that. Here's my point. Every day of our lives, we are putting faith in someone or someone else or something else. And the question is, who are you trusting? What are you putting your trust in? So let me just ask that, that question. What, what is it? Who is it? What, what is it that justifies you? What is it that makes you feel okay? Right? That makes you go, okay, I'm, I'm safe. I, I can look at myself in the mirror and go, I'm okay with being me because fill in the blank. I, I'm okay because I work really hard. I'm a hard worker. I can, I can feel good about myself because, you know, I'm a good person. Because I, I can breathe deep. I can be at peace. I can have rest. Why? Because I'm a good mom. Or I'm a good dad. You know, I pay my taxes. I, I, I go to church. I, I bless, you know, my pastor with cherry cheesecake. That's a self-centered one. Sorry. Um, whatever it is. Whatever it is you're putting your faith in, that's what you're looking to to justify you. And everything I just said was a good thing, but all of those things are things you do. So who is your faith really in? If those things that I just mentioned, the things that you do, if they are able to make you acceptable to God, what you're saying is you're able to save yourself. And that isn't the gospel. And Paul says in chapter 1, if it's another gospel, it's no gospel at all. And the result of it is only condemnation. So if you're experiencing some condemnation this morning, it may be that you're believing the wrong gospel. See, in in, in Galatians, uh, having been justified by faith on Jesus, they had come to the Lord through faith. They now were being tempted to put their trust in following the law to make them okay. To continue to be acceptable to God, they believed you had to follow circumcision and dietary laws and following the Sabbath. And Paul says, no one is justified by following the law. Nobody. Nobody becomes acceptable by God based on their performance because nobody, please hear me, nobody saves themselves. We are accepted, we're justified by faith in Jesus. And since all of us need a Savior, since every person in this room has screwed up, every person in this room has failed and sinned, and since we're all justified the same way by Jesus, what you know what that does? That gives us an incredible unity in Jesus. Look at the next verse, verse 27. For all of you, all of you were, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ... There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So look at what the text is saying. You're not only one with Jesus, okay, because you are, you're clothed in him. And when God the Father looks at you, he sees you clothed with Jesus, right? You know that. But because of that, we're also one with everyone else who's clothed with Jesus. E. Stanley Jones put it this way. I love this. He says, if you belong to Jesus... You belong to everyone who belongs to Jesus. In other words, the things that used to divide us don't divide us anymore. Why? Because we're one. We're one in Christ. Listen, if you take the gospel into your heart, if if you take the gospel in and you truly believe it and you let the gospel be the lens through which you see everything, you will never look down on anyone ever again. If you really take the gospel in, if you really believe the gospel, you'll never, ever look down on anyone ever again. Why? Because you know that you were a sinner and you didn't save yourself. 
It wasn't your performance. You didn't, I didn't do one thing to save myself. So how are you going to look down on anybody else? How am I going to look down on Sue? I can't look down on her. I didn't, I didn't do one thing to save myself. So I can't look at, and listen, she's clothed in Jesus too. So a lot more could be said about that. Kevin did a great job with it last week in, in, in September. Mark it in your calendar, September 17th, Dr. Tony Evans is coming, and he's going to be giving a talk, uh, preaching a message um, that he's written a book on called Oneness Embraced. And somebody said, well, what's the goal of this? He's just coming to talk about how we're one in Jesus. And that leads to verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Wow. Look at this. If you truly take the gospel in, you will, only, you will not only not look down on anyone ever again, but you will also never be jealous of anyone ever again. Why? Because I'm a son of God. What could anyone else possibly have that's better than that? I mean, what, what, what could I ever be envious of? There is nothing to be jealous of because I have everything in him. I'm an heir. Man, I got an inheritance in God. An inheritance, by the way, which would make the wealthiest human being on the earth look like a pauper. The sum of the world's wealth is chump change compared to my inheritance. I mean, just think about that for a second. If you really let the gospel in, you'd never be envious of anybody ever again. Why? Because they ain't got nothing you need. You've got an inheritance in him. This happened to me just, just this week. You know, I, I, and I'm blessed. I have a nice car. I enjoy my car. I, I like cars, and, and I like having a nice car, and I enjoy it. And, and, and it was one, the one moment this week when it wasn't raining. Um, I had my windows down and the sunroof back. I had some music on, and I'm driving down the road. I come to a stoplight, and, and I love my car, but it has a tiny engine. I, you know, I thought gas was going to go. I was like, with the election, gas going to go up. I'm going to look so smart. And now I got a little B engine. I get great gas mileage, and that's it. But anyway, I pull up to the stoplight, and a guy pulls up with an Audi A8L. It's the one with the, you know, the, the big engine, V8. And he comes up, and you know, the, you know when, a, when a car has a big engine, it has a low rumble. Like, <laughs> and it's laughing at me. It pulls up next to me, and the, and the car's going. <laughs> but here's the deal. I was working on this text at the time, and for a moment, I was like, oh, man, I wish I had a big engine. And then I went, wait a second. Man, I'm a son of God. I'm an heir. Man, there's nothing over there that I need to be envious of because I got everything I need. That's chump change. Listen, the next time you, you get tempted to be envious of somebody, just look at it and say, that's chump change because I'm an heir. Now, all of that, what I just said, was reviewed from last week, and you're going, really? Oh, sweet Jesus, help us. It's okay because as we enter into chapter 4, Paul is on the same thought, and he's going to explain what this means about being a son and an heir, and he's going to explain that we are no longer slaves, but we're sons, and that means we're heir. And he has three movements in the first seven verses of chapter 4. And here they are. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to walk through them, and then we'll be done. He said, this is what he's saying. First of all, remember who you were. Number two, remember what God did. And number three, because of that, remember who you are. 
Okay, this is the movement of what he said. This is, the, this is his argument. Remember who you were. Remember who you used to be. Remember what God did, and then remember who that makes you. Now, this is very important. Please pay attention. This is the most mind-blowing truth in the book of Galatians, indeed in the entire New Testament. Actually, it's one of the greatest truths in the universe that through faith in Jesus Christ, we become sons of God. Now, so that no one gets offended, let me just tell you, at the end, we're going to understand why he says sons and not sons and daughters. There's a reason. He's not excluding women. He's actually including them. So no one be offended between now, well, just don't be offended. Just don't be offended, and we'll have a great time. Okay. Here's the deal. This is the climax of everything Paul has said so far in the book. Not only that, this is the apex of creation. And that's not an exaggeration. In Romans 8, uh, uh, it says that all creation is groaning, longing for our adoption as sons. That all of creation is going to be liberated from bondage to decay with our adoption as sons. So this is the crescendo, not just of Galatians, but of the good news. Nothing is more important than this. And let me just tell you something. Nothing is more practically relevant to your life than this. Nothing. Nothing else affects so deeply how you see God, how you see yourself, and how you see everyone else. And therefore, nothing affects how you treat God, how you treat yourself, and how you treat other people more than this. Amen. Now, to understand these, these verses in Galatians 4, you need, to, you need to know that Paul is deliberately framing the gospel story in terms reminiscent of the Exodus story. Okay? In fact, none of the early readers of Galatians missed this. This, you know, as 21st century American followers of Jesus, sometimes we read over things because we don't know the Old Testament context and we don't see what the author's trying to say. But Paul is doing that. He's teeing this up to be another Exodus story. So look at the parallels between the first Exodus story and the new Exodus in the gospel. In both stories, people are enslaved. Okay, in, in Exodus, they were enslaved to Egypt. In, in Galatians 3, it says we're enslaved to sin. Uh, in both stories, there comes a time that was long promised and awaited for. Number three, there's then when that time comes, when the fullness of the time comes, the people are delivered in a glorious act of redemption, which doesn't have anything to do with them. It's outside of them, okay? They are then declared to be sons of God. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the son of God, and, and Jesus is called son, and now we're called sons, Right? Fifth, the living God comes to dwell with his people. And sixth, they then, with God dwelling with them, they journey towards their inheritance. In the Old Testament, it was to the promised land. In the New Testament, it's to the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so with that in mind, this is a new exodus. Let's go to the text. Chapter 4, verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians. Now, keep that word in your mind. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. This is the first movement in the argument here. And he says, number one, remember who you were and who you were was slaves. Just as the nation of Israel were slaves in Egypt, so too you were in slavery to sin, you were in slavery to the fear of death, and even what he calls here the basic principles of the world. And so we're supposed to remember where we came from. That, that 
Our story began in slavery. In fact, God many times in the Old Testament told the nation of Israel, don't, don't forget that you were a slave and I redeemed you. Deuteronomy 15, 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's just one example of many. I mean, what, what he's saying is, remember, you used to be slaves. You're not that anymore. That's who you used to be. In the same way, Paul is saying, you and I, we used to be slaves to sin. And then this weird phrase, the based, we were, we were, in, we were enslaved to the basic principles of the world, which is a tough phrase to get out of your mouth sometimes. And there's a lot of debate over it in the literature, and I've lost track of how many hours I've spent in the last three weeks working on that phrase. But the general, what I've come down to understand by doing a lot of research and that I'm not going to bore you with right now, is that basically what this phrase is referring to uh, in Greek is what they saw as the basic building blocks of the world, okay, which were, if you remember this, earth, water, air, and fire. They, They consider this to be the basic elements of the world. And when you're hearing that, you're like, well, okay, so how are we enslaved to earth, water, air, and fire? Well, if you push further into ancient Near Eastern history, and even into this time in Asia Minor, you see that the elements, those elements, earth, air, wind, and fire, water, and fire, those elements were deified, and they were worshipped as idols. In fact, specifically in Galatia, in the interior of Asia Minor, they worshipped, get this now, the earth mother, and she was often depicted as a guardian, okay? And usually in this depiction of being a guardian, she's enthroned between two lions. And what's interesting here is, first of all, Paul says that these, we, there, we had a guardian, we were young, we were enslaved, and we had a guardian that was leading us to Christ. But in, at the end of chapter 4, he refers to the Jerusalem above as our mother, only in Galatians. Now, some of you are going, I don't understand what the point is. That's okay. Here's the point. Paul is deliberately wording this in a way to show that the worship of the elements or any other idol only leads to slavery. And those things that enslave us ultimately only lead us to Christ. See, in chapter 3, here's what he said in verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. See, in chapter 3, it's the law that was holding us prisoners. We were locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Right? So that was chapter 3. It was the law that held us prisoner, and it was a law that leads, shows us we need Jesus. In chapter 4, he is saying you, to these Galatians who had worshipped false gods, he's saying those idols, those false gods, all they did was enslave you. But listen, ultimately, all they did was show you you need Jesus. Okay, let that in for a second. Even the things that enslaved them were turned around to be used to be the thing that pushed them to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. You think God still does stuff like that? Is it possible that something that you're wrestling with that's trying to enslave you, is it possible that God can even turn that sucker around and use it to be something that pushes you to be like Jesus? To show your need for a savior and a deliverer. <laughs> I'm preaching better than your amen and with all due respect. 
Let's go back to the text. Go back to the text. Verse 4. But when the time had fully come. Stop right there for a second. I think the ESV says, in the fullness of time. When the t- you know what I know? The verse before that said that when the time when the Father sets in advance. The nation of Israel had to wait a long time for a deliverer. Uh, the world had to wait a long time for a Messiah. But the Father had set a time. And when the time fully came, in the fullness of time, let me tell you something. Some of you here are waiting for something. You're standing on a promise, God's spoken to you or something, and you can, let me tell you, there's going to be a time it's going to come. You just hold on. Keep on believing, keep on trusting him, keep your faith in Jesus. There is a time coming. In the fullness of time. I, had one, I heard one preacher when I was back in seminary, as a guest preacher came in. He said basically what that means in Greek is when God got good and ready. I <laughs> like that. There's coming a time in your life God's going to be good and ready. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Just the right time. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. The, the ESV says adoption. And, and technically you can translate it both ways. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba. Father. So number one, remember who you were, and that was you were slaves. Number two, remember what God did. And in these three verses, it says what God did. He did two things. He sent his son, and he sent his spirit. See, both the son and the spirit have a role in the work of redemption. A lot of people like to leave out the spirit, but the spirit is the crescendo, the completion of the work of the son. So he explains the work of the son and the spirit. Let's look at them. First, What did God do? First, God sent his son to redeem us. He went under the law to redeem us because we were under law. What does that mean, to be redeemed? It means to be purchased. It means to be bought. When someone who was in slavery was redeemed, their freedom was purchased. They were delivered from slavery. And so, because Jesus was sent by the Father by virtue of his death, resurrection, and ascension, you and I have been redeemed by Jesus from slavery, which is awesome. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. Imagine that you're on death row and you're guilty. You you did what... They said you did. It's not like you're uh, inappropriately, you know, in, enslaved. You, you, you did it, and you're on death row, and you know you're headed to death. And I don't know if you've ever, I've preached in prisons before. When you walk in, it's like this ominous sound when those steel bars clang shut. And there you are behind it. You're on death row. You know you're going to die. And then all of a sudden, one day, you don't even know why this day, but in the fullness of time. When the father said right now, the the gates swung open and they clanged open. And it's wide open. And and the warden of the jail came in and said, you've been declared righteous. You're innocent of the crime and you're free to go. And you walk out. If you were on death row and then you got set free because of what somebody else said, what do you think you would act like? I mean, do you think you'd go, bless God. No, man, 
you know, I, you know, one of our sons is, a, is a, in law school, third year law school, and, and he's always into, you know, really people who have been unjustly arrested and accused, being set free. And, and, and every once in a while, I'll see a video of somebody who, you know, there's new DNA evidence, and it shows that they were not actually the person who did it, and they get out and they get free. When you watch those videos, man, they don't act like they in church. No, it's not. No. Man, they're jumping up and down. They're just screaming. They're, I mean, I saw one where the, the mom was out there, and she was obviously a believer. She's going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank, she's bouncing. She's hugging people, kissing people. She didn't even know some of the people she was kissing. Man, I don't know. I wonder if we really thought about what Jesus did for us, if we might have a little more emotion in worship. If we really thought about what he did, maybe tears might come to our eyes. We were on death row and we deserved it. And he set us free. (laughs) Every once in a while somebody will say something to me like, you know, they're going through a hard time or something. And they'll say, I just think God's punishing me for my sin. That's exactly what I say. I say to them, and usually when somebody's going through something hard, they don't need a lecture. Okay. But when somebody says, God's just punishing for my sin, I just say, nope. You say, well, how do you know? Here's how I know. He already punished Jesus for your sin. He already took it. And listen, God is a just God. He's not going to require two payments for one debt. And Jesus already paid the debt in full. In full. Man, I love that hymn, that old hymn, The Bliss. Oh, he says, my sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Man, I didn't even have that in my notes. I like that. I've been redeemed. My debt has been paid in full, and that is wonderful to think about. That's what we've been delivered from, but that's not the end of the work of the son. You say, what? That's not the end? No, oh, there's more. There's more. Because second, God sent his son not just to redeem us, God sent his son to adopt us. The NIV says full rights of son, ESV, adoption. And there are a lot of things about adoption in the first century that are, you know, I think in Paul's mind here, but there's two which are really important. Number one, in adoption in the first century, when you got adopted, it immediately canceled all debts of the adopted one. Now, you could have been older. You could have been 20 years old and be adopted in the first century. And when you were adopted, you could have owed $10 billion. It doesn't matter. It's gone. Erased in a moment. That was pretty good, wasn't it? That was a good thing. Erased in a moment. That's the first thing. But the second thing was even better than that. It bestowed upon them all of the rights of being a son, which included being an heir to the inheritance. See, I think most times people, and I do this too, we think of justification or salvation or adoption as just what we were delivered from. We were delivered from death, from our sin. We were delivered from all of these debts that we had. They got canceled. But that's not all of adoption. It's not just what you're, you're adopted from. It's what you're adopted to, which is the rights and privileges of sonship. See, not only did Jesus remove the curse that we deserved, he gave us a blessing that he deserved. 
back to the death row image, okay? Back to the death row. You're in death row, and, and, and all of a sudden the door clangs open, and you're set free because of what Jesus did, and you're allowed out. And, and, and if that were the end of the story, then you got to go make it on your own, right? you got to go find a job. you got to find a place to live. you gotta, you know, you got to try to save up for retirement. you got to do all of these things to go with life. That's not the full gospel. The full gospel is this. The door clangs open. You're on death row. The door clangs open. You're set free. And as you're walking out, Jesus takes his congressional medal of honor and puts it around your neck and says, my righteousness is now yours, and my righteousness is credited to your account. It's like the, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest military award for valor there is. I remember a number of years ago, watching, there's a show that we used to watch a long time ago. I don't even know if it's still on or not. It's called NCIS. Is that show still on? Is it still on? On cable, okay. So in this show, in this one particular show, there was an older gentleman who had been a Marine, and he's standing there, and there's a, 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 the group of, like, military police that are and, and from the JAG unit. They're going to come in, and they're going to arrest this guy. And they come in. They're, oh, yeah. And so, they, yeah, you like this illustration, brother. Okay. Yeah. You, you, oh, you remember the scene. Oh, man, wait for it then, bro. Wait for it. Okay. So the, the military police come in. Oh, now I'm getting excited, see? So they come in to arrest this old guy, you know, and he's there, and he's very humble, and he, he, he's not going to try to fight him off. And there's a, a soldier in the middle, and she's the JAG unit, and these two Marines right there, big guys, and it's like they're going to throw the cuffs on him and manhandle him. And just about the time they're going to do that, Denozo, you remember him? Denozo reaches over and pulls the guy's tie back to reveal the Congressional Medal of Honor. And instantly, without saying a word, without conferring, both stepped back and saluted the Congressional Medal of Honor. Because what? They didn't know what he did, but they knew this. If that man had the Congressional Medal of Honor, that's the highest award for valor and bravery in battle. Somebody's alive today because of what that guy did. And so they showed him respect. They showed him honor. Listen, on the cross at Calvary. You were on death row, behind change. All of a sudden, in the fullness of time, the door slammed open. You got to walk out, and Jesus took his righteousness, and he wrapped it around your neck so that when the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. And those things that came to enslave you, you know what they do now? They got to step back and salute the righteousness of the righteous one. That's the work of the sun. That's right. You need to shout about that. And guess what? There's more. I know. It's like a commercial. How much would you pay for this? Don't answer yet. There's more. Because beyond the work of the sun, there's also the work of the spirit. Verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Now, here's what Tim Keller says about this. He says, the son's purpose was to secure your legal status of sonship. By contrast, the spirit's purpose is to secure your actual experience of it. Do you follow that? Jesus redeemed us. Jesus justified us. And because of that, we have an objective legal position whether you feel it or not. Okay, so here, here's the deal. If you woke up this morning and you didn't feel saved, it had nothing to do with whether or not you were saved. Right. 
okay? If you didn't feel, I don't feel accepted, that don't matter. The objective position is true. It is the, get the word right, finished work of Jesus. Whether you feel it or you don't feel it, it's true. That's the work of the Son. But the Holy Spirit then comes and makes that reality real in our experience of it. He makes it more clear in Romans 8. Listen to this, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And look at this sentence. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, we got to unpack this a little bit because that Greek word that is translated both in in, in Galatians 4 and Romans 8 as calls out in NIV or cries out in ESV, it's a strong word. And it's a earnest, loud, it it, it gets used for rending, it's deep passion, it's deep feeling. So the Spirit takes this objective reality that Jesus did and makes it more than just words on a page. Okay, it's more than just some ethereal idea that we give you know, intellectual assent to. He makes it real in our relationship so that what do we do? We cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba is just Aramaic for, for my father. Okay, it, it, it's, it's personal. It's, it's not just that he's a father, he's my father. And the spirit makes it personal in our experience. The truth of what Jesus did by the Spirit now is real. And he's not just a God. He's my God. He's not a father. He's my father. And I cry out, Abba. Thomas Schreiner teaches down the road here at a little school down the road. And he says this in his commentary on Galatians, which is actually quite good. He says, the fundamental proof and evidence that the Galatians are truly God's adopted sons is that God has given them the Holy Spirit. The point is that the Spirit confirms, authenticates, and ratifies their sonship. Are you hearing this? The work of the Son is something done externally to us, whether you feel it or not. The work of the Spirit is something internally. Verse 6 says, he sent his Spirit into our hearts. And that includes your entire being. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your feelings, all of it. Our sonship makes it real. Uh, let me just illustrate this with this little story. I, I, when each of the boys turned 10, I went on a trip with them, and, and we went and did something uh, different for each of them. And for Graham, our second son, we went to this place, um, Great Wolf Lodge, and we went on this, and, and, and uh, we, we accidentally got separated uh, uh, from each other, and it was longer than you would ever want to be separated from, and when we finally found, when I came kind of around a corner, and there he was, and one of the workers there was trying to find me, uh, you know, he, he looked at me, and he said, Daddy! And I ran to him, and he ran to me, and I scooped him up in my arms, and, and I had tears in my eyes, and he had tears in his eyes. Here's the deal. All the time we were separated, I was still his dad. I, I've been the, his dad since the day he was born. Actually, before that, I was his dad. But I've always been his dad. I'm always going to be his dad. It's an objective truth whether he feels it or not. I'm his dad. And I'm his dad no matter what. Right? But in that moment, when I scooped him up and he said, Daddy! 
he felt it. He experienced it that I was his dad. You see the difference? That's what the spirit does. Let me ask you this question. Have you had this experience? Has your justification been made real to you so that you just, there's something in you that says, Abba, maybe you don't say Abba because you don't speak Aramaic. Father, where you have a profound, has this ever happened to you? Where you have this, you have this profound sense of forgiveness that you are clean. Man, you did all kinds of stupid stuff in your past, but man, because of what Jesus did, because of the spirit, you just, you're clean. And you're accepted by God. Listen, if you've never experienced that, today can be your day. In fact, part of me just wants to stop right now and pray for you if that's you. But I got one more verse. (laughs) Hang on with me. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Here's the third one. It's not just remember who you were. You were a slave. It's not just remember what God did. He sent his son. He sent his spirit. It's now remember who you are, sons. Now, here's what I told you I would explain earlier on. Because some of you, don't be offended that he doesn't say sons and daughters. He says sons. And here's why. In the ancient Near East, there was an institution called primogeniture. And some of you are thinking, prima who? Primogeniture which just means the inheritance goes to the oldest son. The oldest son gets a double portion, right? And the daughters don't get anything. And that's the way, even, even in Athens at this time, that was considered so egalitarian, so, you know, you know, women were treated differently there. Even there, if a man only had a daughter, his inheritance didn't go to his daughter. It went to her sons. It skipped a generation, all right? So what's happening here is in verse 6, Paul says, you, plural, are sons, meaning all of you, men and women, receive an equal inheritance. This is radically empowering for women because it's what he's saying is you're full participants in the inheritance. See, when he says sons, it's not about gender, it's about inheritance. You're not partial heirs, you're not second class heirs, full participants, full recipients. We're all sons through faith in Jesus Christ. So for a child of God, think of it this way. Let the, oh, just let the gospel in this morning. If you believe the gospel and you know that you are a child of God, you have a confidence and you have a boldness that you walk in because you're an heir. And if you will let the gospel in, if you will let your adoption in that you are an heir, you will never have to fear anything or anything else or anyone ever again. Yeah. If you let the gospel in, You don't have to be afraid of anybody or anything. I don't have to fear anything anymore. Why? Because my Abba owns the place. I don't know. What it was it? Not even two months ago yet when we were in Virginia Beach. And Graham asked Caroline to marry her. I mean, I was serious. serious. See, I'm going to tell you something. This marriage thing is contagious. (laughs) We had one son get married and then... The other son's getting married. Anyway, you think COVID's contagious. Y'all better watch out. (laughs) Excuse me. Elijah asked Caroline to marry. All right. And so we're down in Virginia, and that was on a Friday night. And so on Saturday morning, the ladies went out dress shopping, and the guys went to the naval base, which we got the best end of that stick. Okay. So, So 
her father is getting ready to take over command of the USS Harry S. Truman, which is an aircraft carrier. He's a commander of an aircraft carrier. There's only 11 of them in the American Navy, the U.S. Navy, right? And, and so he's pretty high up. And so he took myself and all the boys to the naval base. And we got to see aircraft carriers and battleships and all kinds of stuff. And we also got to see, uh, you know, go walk into the hangar with all these F-18s. Now, it was wow. It was like awesome, actually. And we're walking, and, and because we're with him, we're with Gavin, we're walking around like we own the place. I'm walking, I don't know any, I mean, and in the hangar, there were six or eight F-18s. These things cost $60 million a piece. $60 million a piece. And people are walking, and we're just walking around. I'm going up under them, looking at Look at, and there's another guy over there, and he sees us. You know, we're looking around, and he's just about to say something to me when he sees Gavin walk right by me, and you know what he does? He salutes him. I said, yes, sir. You know what? I was fearless. I was fearless. Why? Because I had the captain with me. Listen, that's just hanging out with the captain in the Navy. What Paul is talking about here is that we are children of Almighty God. What do we have to fear? My Abba owns the place, man, and he's in charge. I ain't afraid of you. And you know what else I'm not afraid of? I'm not afraid of missing out. You know, the whole FOMO, fear of missing out, that leads a lot of people into a lot of sin. Because you think you know how to make yourself happy better than God does. <laughs> Which is pretty stupid if you think about it, but no offense. Because we've all done that. We're all thinking that, that somehow sin will make us happier than doing the righteous thing. But it's not true. Because your Abba knows what you need. And he's not telling you not to sin because he wants to take your joy. He wants you to have joy. That's why he's telling you that. And you don't obey him to get accepted. Because you are accepted, you obey him. And your desire to be happy is not at odds with God's desire to be glorified. See, a lot of times we think that. But it's not. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. That's a statement I stole from John Piper. But the truth is, my desire to be happy and God's desire to be glorified are not at odds. Man, the way for me to be happy is to glorify him. So I am not afraid of missing out. Oh, no. Because I'm adopted. I'm a son. Look at the verse again. One last observation. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Here's the last observation. Paul shifts in this verse, verse 7. In verse 6, it was, and this is hard to see in English, but in verse 6, it is you, plural. Earlier in chapter 3, it's you are all sons of God. It it would be like, you know, in Kentucky, we say y'all. You, plural, right? He shifts from y'all, or God's son, to singular in verse 7. Now, why would he do that? Why would he shift from y'all to you? 
Imagine it this way. Imagine it this way. The way these letters were read originally when the apostle pins the, the letter, it is then taken by courier to the, the Galatian church and they all come together. Can you imagine the excitement? They're going to hear from the apostle what the apostle says. They come together and someone opens the scroll and they read it out loud. Can you imagine when this letter is first read and the person who's reading it picks out a surprise listener who's gathered there and says, you, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. And you, you, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. And you, over there, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. And you, you're no longer a slave. You are a son. Do you see what's happening? It's not just corporately, it's me. And somehow you got to let that in, that this is not just something out there that we all are. It is something in here that God has made us. And at some point, we got to start living like what this says is true. Can you imagine what that felt like for them that first day? The freedom. That freedom's here today. 